Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. My name is Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine spirits educating body. And today we're going to be talking about wine ratings. Indeed. Before we start that, do we, do we maybe want to address the... Uh... The sound elephant in the room. There is should, no sound elephant. Should uh, should I not be able to clean up this audio properly enough? Let's just say that there were some technical problems and we're working with one mic this week and we will hopefully have this solved by our next podcast and we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> one mic on a different computer. One mic on a different computer. So if you want to help us uh, <laughs> with uh, this podcast, maybe consider sending me a new MacBook. <laughs> so yeah, so that's the audio elephant in the room. That's the audio elephant in the room. So uh, that's all we want to say about that. Wine yeah, scores. That's it. So wine scores, especially when you're trying to get into wine, we know that it can be kind of intimidating being given the pressure to make the correct choice when buying a wine. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that the industry has created a solution for you is to make the choices more specific. They, they give you a rating scale. So we wanted to talk about the different rating scales that are out there, how they work, how they were developed, and kind of our personal opinions on whether or not they're useful, how mm -hmm. they're useful, and how we use them even. Yeah. So uh, starting off, probably with the most popular of the wine rating scales, which most wine rating scales are based off of in some way, shape, or form, is going if to be... not directly copying. It's kind of incredible how the industry will make such subtle changes to the language of how these different scales are working, oh, but yeah. will cause such major differences yeah. in how they actually work. But it's all based on... Something that was invented, I think it was, it was the 1970s, 70s, yeah. uh, by a guy named Robert Parker. And this scoring system was put in place in order to give kind of a stepping off point from an understanding of the American scholastic system. Scores will typically run from 60 to 100. And that's what it is. It's a 100-point scale. Yeah, so if you don't know who Robert Parker is, Robert Parker is a very famous wine critic. He came up, as we said, in the 70s. He is very big, on, or at least when he started, he was very big on consumer accessibility within wine critics. So the problem that he was trying to fix at the time was there was no real standardization of wine criticism. Everybody kind of had their own metrics on how they were gauging wine very hoity-toity bros club kind of situation going on yeah where your cigar club was basically the thing that was separating whether or not you thought a wine was good or not correct and on top of that there were some financial incentives that some of these wine critics were getting from the producers that they were reviewing to give them a better score which is obviously a huge conflict of interest so robert parker decided to modify a current existing scale at the time that was used by oh lord i did not put in my notes and i can't believe i didn't um it was a university i forget which university it was they had i believe it was a 20 point system and the 20 point system is actually still used yeah. widely in places like the uk so he took that and basically just expanded it to 100 points now robert parker is also the mind or well mind and work <laughs> in a way 
behind Wine Advocate. You've probably heard of Wine Advocate. They're one of the big wine publications, along with Wine Enthusiast, Wine Spectator, Decanter. Excuse me, that was, uh, it was a 20 point from UC Davis. Davis, okay. So that is where he got, I guess, the idea for a point scale to begin with, and then elaborated it and adapted it into his own framework. Now, to this day, his scale does come with a caveat on Wine Advocate's website. It has a little section that you can visit about how to interpret the score, and this little section basically says that the accompanying tasting note with the score is more important than the score itself, because the score can only tell you so much. And a direct quote from this little section of the website is, No scoring system is perfect, but a system that provides for flexibility in scores, if applied by the same taster without prejudice, can quantify different levels of wine quality and provide the reader with one professional's judgment. However, there can never be any substitute for your own palate, nor any better education than tasting the wine yourself, which I wholeheartedly oh, agree yeah. with. This is why even when I was doing wine sales, what we would typically tell people is, hey, so you shouldn't just go off of the points themselves. Find a wine from these guys and... If you happen to find a wine taster, somebody who has done a rating, and you really enjoyed that wine, well, maybe you actually have similar taste to that taster. Yes. So Parker's kind of whole philosophy, when he came up with this rating system, it was to have consumers be informed of wine quality in very easy to understand terms, where you can look at the bottle, you can see it has this score, and... If you read the tasting note, great, but even if you don't have the tasting note, you can at least think like 90-point bottle, probably at least a quality wine. There have been some vocal critics of um, particularly his claims about having no conflict of interest. I won't go into any of them here uh, just because I don't particularly care to comment on it because I can't verify them for myself. But there have been some people that have kind of doubted how sincere some of this is and whether money changes hands whether that be through wine advocate or through other investment that he holds like there was a vineyard that he was invested in for example and people were saying well that could be a conflict of interest um, again not here to really speculate on it but just know that it is important i think to acknowledge that some people have had some doubts yeah but Overall, from at least my own personal research for this episode and even reading his own words, I think in general, even if there have been some moments where maybe he hasn't been the most transparent, I think in general, I do appreciate what he has tried to do for regular people who just want to get a good yeah. bottle of wine off the shelf at the store. And there is a lot to be said about what this actually does for people, because... If you walk in and you're just trying to get into wine, you're not going to know about terroir. You're not yeah. going to know about aspect. You're not going to know about a lot of the things that make wines what they are, mm -hmm. or maybe not even so much what to pair with those wines. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I know that now Parker himself has become a less of a known influence. He's still, mm -hmm. by far and large, through this, a huge influence. But James Particularly Suckling, for older... Oh, yeah, James Suckling has really risen up, who also uses the 100-point system. Exactly. Um, Robert Parker is also still very popular amongst, um, I guess, what would kind of now, ironically enough, be considered the old guard mm -hmm. in the wine industry. 
for good reason. I mean, the guy has a proven track record of his scoring being very much in line with other wine critics and even wine sales themselves. So there is a positive correlation there that he does have the palette to back up his criticism. Exactly. But that being said, there are some things that might make people feel as though that the canonization of this points rating system does end up introducing an environmental factor to the wine industry. Because it's not just, oh, here's another style, it's now we are measuring styles against a particular palette or a particular group of palettes mm -hmm. whose taste might be now ingrained inside of the rating system itself. Yeah. So let's actually get into that particular aspect of how has this kind of affected the industry as a whole and how has the industry reacted to these scoring systems. And I think probably the, the biggest uh, impact has been kind of the very overwhelming adoption by pretty much every major publication, Wine Enthusiast, Wine Spectator. Decanter's system is a little bit different, if I remember correctly, but it is still a point system. And right? it's, it's still roughly based. Yeah. So this the same thing. Yeah. But uh, Wine Enthusiast and Wine Spectator both have adopted the 100 point scale. Many wine distribution companies and shops mm -hmm. also will have some variation. Yeah. That's probably the most noticeable impact, at least on the selling retail side of things. Precisely. And that's kind of a good thing and a bad thing because it means that generally you're going to be able to walk into any shop mm -hmm. and you're going to be able to see a wine rating and that wine rating is going to tell you that for the price that is a decent wine yes but on the flip side is it favors a particular style of wine mm -hmm. or it can even because a lot of things that critics will look for tend to be what's called typicity if you're tasting a rioja and it doesn't taste like you think a Rioja is supposed to taste, you might dock the wine. Exactly. Which is part of why a lot of these wines are blind tasted. But even in a blind tasting, you are almost inevitably going to be running through your head on what you think the wine is and comparing what you're drinking to what is in your head of what you think you should be drinking. Which again, good and bad. Yeah. If a wine just tastes good, then there should be room for that. But yeah. if you are specifically looking for... Like you said, like a Rioja, or if I'm mm -hmm. tasting a Pinot Noir out of Willamette Valley, there are certain things that I'm looking for exactly. and that I should be able to expect. And you might score the wine lower if you think that's what it is and it's not meeting those requirements. Exactly. So some it might be that this is actually a Pinot Noir that's, you know, out of uh California mm -hmm. as opposed to Sonoma Oregon. Or something. Or, yeah. yeah. And so I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I think that this is a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. But it's actually out of Sonoma, and yeah. so I'm rating it against other Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs, which mm -hmm. I expect to have a higher quality, capable of being aged slightly, and so I'm judging it based on tertiary characteristics that are never going to be inside of Sonoma wines. Yeah, and I, I would caveat that point with critics are supposed to watch out for this. It is something you're supposed to be trained to think about, but I think... If you're doing a blind tasting, everybody inevitably will do this at some point or another. I know I have, at least. I'll say that. Another drawback that has been very prevalent, so much so that there's a term for it now yeah. in the wine industry, is because Robert Parker was the one that really promoted this scale. 
he has his own palate that he enjoys much like everyone and his palate tends to be very ripe some people will say overripe to jammy full wines and that has led to a process called parkerization and what does that mean it basically means that wineries and producers started to make wines to get high scores from Robert Parker because when Robert Parker rates wines highly, their price goes up. Precisely. So they can make more money based off the increased demand of his endorsement. So that has led to the problem of a lot of homogeneity, particularly since the 80s, which we're kind of now starting to see backed off on a little bit. There is a much more of a focus on terroir that is creeping up right now, but the standard... You know, middle shelf wines, particularly red wines that you're finding in the store, if they are trying to seek a approved score from Robert Parker, are going to be going for these very full-bodied, very jammy, fruit-forward wines. So we're talking typically a later harvest. We're talking mm -hmm. about much, much more bold fruit flavors as opposed to focus on tertiary or secondary uh, flavor aspects, mm -hmm. which, again... That produces a very specific type of wine and it's overall. also very heavily skewed towards warmer climates and the grapes mm -hmm. that are going to grow there versus cooler climate wines. Which again, to go back to my favorite, Willamette Valley, Oregon, to compare that to an area inside of California, which is mm -hmm. particularly hot, yeah. there is a likelihood that in this point system, a lot of wine reviewers would rate the one from Sonoma more highly mm -hmm. simply because there's going to be a bolder fruit presence yeah. or at the very least robert parker would yes well and that's the thing so and maybe, he's the one with the name <laughs> maybe we should go into kind of the rating scale itself yeah yes so i <laughs> i'm trying to be nice in this episode but when i read how this scale is broken down i was a little incredulous i'm not gonna lie did you see why i was so harsh when i was because originally <laughs> uh gabe and i were talking and he was kind of playing devil's advocate for several publications and i was like no i really do think that you have to look at how skewed this is when you compare it to something like the grid method or something along the lines of what is taught in w set mm -hmm. it, it was it was funny though how much you were <laughs> you were standing well the, uh, i i still will go to bat for the publications and we'll get into a little more of the positive aspects after going over this um but yeah i i guess i thought that it was more um in my personal opinion logical than <laughs> at least what i found in the article i i pulled this image from because we're looking at a picture I took from an article. And, and I also have the wine rating scales that I was taught to use. Yeah. Um, and I had to rate between 12 and 30 wines a month. Which I find, I we haven't talked about this, but practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Exactly. So if they're not giving you the tools to initially know how to rate wine, giving you the assignment to then rate wine is just odd. Well, so to what me. they would do is they would give you the, and you know, I'm not even sure how much of this I'm, I'm allowed to say, but because we were untrained, they would give you the tasting notes that you were supposed to find. Mm. And then if you couldn't find them, then that was the thing. Okay. But the other thing was, is that we only ever were rating wines that they wanted us to sell. Mm. So some conflict of interest, it sounds There like. was definitely <laughs> some conflict of interest. And again, like, because of the frequent trend towards 
fruitier, bolder wines, mm-hmm. they even changed some of the language of their rating system gotcha. in order to uh, do that. So but well, let's, let's let's get into yeah, it. Yeah. Let's go into the system that that was based off of. So for the Robert Parker scale, at least we both believe this is the Robert Parker scale because it wasn't explicitly stated in the article I got it from that this is a scale, but it lines up with everything else I read about it. Um, My favorite point topic, our first... <laughs> points awarded yeah so fun fact about the robert parker scale it is literally impossible unless there is something seriously wrong like they put the antifreeze wine. in it yeah or like that wine that we had at our friend's place a couple weeks back that, that rosé something was really wrong awful. with that um anyway that's a different story for a different time so 50 points of the robert parker scale unless again something is seriously wrong is that it's wine that is 50 points and off the bat. And it's not poison. It's not poison. You have five points for color and appearance. That seems like a very small number to me personally. Me as well. I mean, color can tell you a lot about age. If it's hazy, that might be a flaw. It might mean the wine wasn't filtered. There's still five points. It's not the most important thing. Color is not the most important thing. But it's important enough that I feel like it should have been given at least like 10. But anyway, uh, Aroma and Bouquet has 15, which is decent. I think that's a fine yeah. number. And they, and they include complexity in this. Like they're specifically mm-hmm. saying that this should be about what you're able to perceive as well as how many mm-hmm. different things you're able to perceive. Yeah. And how those things work in harmony together. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not seeing something for intensity, but I'm going to work on the assumption that they're probably looking for intensity of aroma as well. And this is awarded 15 points. Yes. Uh, So then we have flavor and finish, which is 20 points. And obviously flavor is what you taste. Finish is how long the wine's flavor remains in your mouth after swallowing. 20 points seems fair enough to me, although... I personally, I think, would have docked five points from this and given them over to color and appearance, but that's just me. Well, and and this is one place where I think the rating system that I was part of was a little bit better because it separated out finish from flavor. Mm-hmm. So you're yeah. right, because sometimes something tastes really good, but it doesn't last too long. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and sometimes even a, a slightly lesser intense or, or lesser amazing flavor, if it can actually linger on the tongue a bit longer. I mm-hmm. mean, I would I would give that a separate. Yeah, tying it up into the same thing is a little strange to me as well, but it's how it's arranged. Um, and then we also have overall quality as our final factor, which is another 10 points. And this is kind of like how the reviewer thinks overall given all the previous yeah. conditions. Well, and one might think like balance. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's sort of some additional factors, how well the wine does on a quality scale. And if you total all these points up together, it comes out to a hundred. So I just find this a little strange. <laughs> um, I think my biggest gripe, and this is a personal thing is assigning points to these instead of maybe more kind of like what i was trained to do of writing out a tasting note that explores these a little bit more in depth than kind of in my opinion arbitrary assignment of a number yeah i understand that for the purpose of what this score is supposed to be as like a little thing on a label you can't do that but it is a criticism that i still have of it nonetheless it favors Again, wines that show a lot of typicity versus maybe more experimental wines. 
and it it favors again what the critic themselves thinks which at the end of the day any system you use is going to be that and robert recognizes that he, he has said as much but should the industry then have adopted so rigorously this exact system instead of trying to maybe go for something that could be a bit more sub- or objective I don't well, know if and there I think, is an answer for that. I think that the main problem that I have with this is that so much of the wine points are awarded from such a subjective place that it doesn't show enough of its work. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like long division. I need to know why you you mm-hmm. like this. Because if you're saying that the flavor and the length are good and you're going to award that its full value, I need to know exactly why it is that you're saying that. Is it because that's the sort of thing that you enjoy? I mean, there's not even a, a real mention of tannins or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, well, that's another thing is um, scoring whites and reds on the exact same scale is a little strange. You can't do it. But to play devil's advocate, do you remember that Parker has said, we want you to read the tasting note along with this score because that does show the work, yeah. as as it were. It does, but um, it but doesn't again, as how a many people matter are actually numbers. doing that. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're going off the numbers. Yeah. And obviously the wine industry has shown us that it wasn't about people's individual taste. It was about the fact that it was Robert Parker yeah. who is giving this thing. He's mm-hmm. canonized this yeah. uh, way of showcasing wine and rating it and then by extension also now james suckling has has the baton mm-hmm. passed to him and he yeah. also favors these super right smooth reds mm-hmm. yeah well let's get away from being so harsh for a second and kind of go into some of the positives at least on the industry side of things that have come from the scale it is easy to understand for people who don't know much about wine you go into the store you see a highly rated bottle and you say all right, I'm going to get that for dinner. There's also, and this kind of gets into, you know, a different discussion altogether in a way of institutional knowledge versus the average consumer's desires in wine. It is true that these big publications have the reputation that they do for a reason. And I do think there's some credit to be given for having um these bigger institutions quote unquote as it were to at least be a trusted voice yeah so the way that i look at it is from the perspective of the new wine buyer walking in because they are about to have somebody over for dinner or they want to have a nice special occasion for themselves mm-hmm. and they just need to pick up a good bottle and they don't really have a knowledge base for this because they studied something else during their college years yes <laughs> You know, so they walk in and they're just thinking to themselves, I need a good bottle. Mm-hmm. And so they go in, they don't have a lot of taste. They maybe haven't had the most expensive stuff, or maybe they have, but they didn't have the palate in order to appreciate it. Or even they just don't like that certain style of wine. Yeah, but they know that their friend likes a red. Yeah. You know, they prefer Moscato for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there and you're thinking, I got to find this wine that I either don't have experience with or don't have an interest in. It's perfect for that, especially since a lot of people do end up going towards more of these big, bold things. And it'll give you a good starting point for what the industry considers to be quality. Yeah. And again, there's a reason that we have people who are trained to do this do this. And it's not as though their opinions are bad. Yeah. The, The gripes I feel like both Gabe and I have 
are that they're not specific enough to advance you in your exploration of wine to the extent that we believe is possible, but yeah. not necessary. Well, so that actually kind of rounds out my like positives um, for the industry. So let's kind of get into our own personal observations and just criticism, which I mean, I guess we've kind of been doing that this whole time. But yeah, more, we can't help it. Man. Yeah, more, <laughs> more, more of our specific um, observations, kind of like what you just said. For me, it's a little bit insular to only look at the big publications. So we've said this before. The wine industry is very trend-driven and very sales-driven. It's just the nature of the industry. Anything that you drink for pleasure... Things run on money. Yeah, whiskey, sake, anything is going to be, at the end of the day, this kind of product is going to be about the experience and it's going to be trend-driven because Mm -hmm. people's tastes change over time. Yeah, you, you change based on an experience. You have a really good dinner with your friends. You're more likely to have a positive opinion on yeah. the wine that you had there. Well, and, and this is a like very real phenomenon is a lot of people will say, I tried the wine at the winery, got a bottle, and didn't taste as good when I got home. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes down to, A, they were probably serving at the right temperature. If it was a red, it's been open for a while and was allowed to breathe before you tried it. And also, you have a tasting attendant. Most of the time, at least, it, well, before COVID, at least, you had an, a tasting attendant who, you know, you were able to converse with and have yeah. a good time. And you're on a vineyard and the sun is out. And, and they're sitting there, pretty. they're going, oh, my gosh, you know, you're smelling the fresh cut grass that they yeah. had in the yard. While the, at the same time, they're going, ooh, and did you get plum? And then suddenly yeah. your synapses fire and, and make the connection to plum mm-hmm. that you would not have made. And to be clear, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I think this is actually a good thing. Me because too. At the end of the day, both of these experiences are subjective, right? No one is more real than the other just because they're different. This Um, is why we encourage you to go and tour your wineries, by the way. Yeah. Well, and also you might get to see some cool behind-the-scenes stuff if you get to, you know. Might get to talk to Tim Moore, the head (laughs) chef at At Early Early Mountain. Mountain. Yeah. Um, But... Going back to the big publications, though, and kind of the more authoritative voices on the industry, they, in a way, are kind of disconnected from that very personal experience that you're going to get at, you know, the one-on-one in a tasting room. They're more focused on what's doing well right now. So in the 80s, Bordeaux became a big thing because Bordeaux wines tend to fit into Robert Parker's thing. And Robert Parker kind of became famous on calling a Bordeaux vintage in the 80s that other wine critics panned kind of overall but then he ended up being proven right anyway again robert parker does have credentials to back up his the, palate, the cloud but, is real but saying that he still has his own preference and his preference drove the whole industry and what the wine industry might think is good or says is good could very well be good but it might not be what you want if you're a white wine drinker you probably had a rough time in the 80s if you were around because everybody was drinking big bold reds in the 80s in my opinion, at the you know big publication level, it's a little insular in that it's very much informed by what is popular in the palettes of the top critics. And there's also something to be said for top critics typically become top critics by getting in with other top critics. Exactly. And, and so it becomes kind of an echo chamber. Yeah. And not only an echo chamber, an echo chamber that can... And I'm not saying all the time, but mm-hmm. it can be fueled by monetary incentives yeah. from people who have the ability to not buy the opinions. I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that because I don't want to besmirch the inventiveness and mm-hmm. the 
hard work that goes into producing some of these higher rated wines, mm-hmm. but that takes money in order to get to. Yeah. And if they have the money to do that and then also get these guys to review them mm-hmm. and also get these guys to allow them to purchase the right to print mm-hmm. the points yeah, on you, their you bottle. You do have to purchase, for, not for all of them, but for, for all some, of them. but for some of them, you do have to purchase the rights to use their score. Exactly. And if you have to do that, then you can't say that the influence of simple wealth isn't influencing yep. uh, how these wines are being yeah. perceived and presented to the public. Some family-owned winery in the Languedoc that does an incredible rosé is probably not going to have the capital to get their wine into James Suckling's mouth. Like, oh, yeah. that's just not... No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. It's more than likely that they don't even produce enough for points being printed on the bottle mm-hmm. to be something that's monetarily advantageous to them yeah exactly because a lot of these guys are also producing enough to where that you know there's a calculation how many bottles of wine do i need to sell in order for this quality of wine to bring in a profit Mm -hmm. so that i can expand it's not even a malicious thing you want to be able to expand your business Mm -hmm. but again it's it's part of that monetary undercurrent yeah so kind of moving on from the insular observation i also do think I wrote down two subjective, but I actually kind of want to redact that a little bit. I think what I'm getting at is less that because at the end of the day, as I said earlier, any rating scale is going to be subjective for wine. That's just how the human psyche works for, you know, our more sensory experiences, right? So what I do think is that when you have particularly a numbered scale, that gives kind of the impression of having some scientific rigor to it. Yeah. It's an argument from authority. Yeah. And we do, you know, they do have it broken down by this category gets this many points and you can score up to this. And so like there is some rigor behind it, but I do think it's still a little misleading to have, because most people don't know how these scoring systems work. And so to have this, you know, 100 point system where you can't even score below 50. And if you get below a 90, you're probably not even going to bother putting it on your bottle to begin with. Then is that really as rigorous as it appears to be to the average person? In my opinion, no. No. But, you know, everybody's different. Some people might disagree with that, and that's totally fine. I feel that it gives an air uh, because, and this is where we get into some of the more mass sourced rating types, because you can have a, the group of people who are able to be tested by James Suckling and other popular critics, and then the people, the very few that can actually publish those results. Mm-hmm. And so then you have a very small data set for the people who are having their wines publicized under that rating system. Yeah. But then you also have things like Cellar Tracker and Vivino. Now, these groups also have their drawbacks, which I'm sure you'll be able to articulate a bit better than I can. But the advantage of this is that there is no buy-in. Yeah. It's literally mass-sourced. It's it's a, uh, two social publicated wine ratings. It's not like Yelp where you have to pay to play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like a lot of these other things where you can have certain reviews featured over others. It's literally just what everybody is saying. Yeah. Now, that's advantageous because that means that, you know, you can search by grape type. You can uh, Mm -hmm. search by varietal. You can search by style. And you can get a general sense of what people are saying. Vivino also has a much larger 
reach in terms of the wines you can find on it. Exactly. Because the major publications, I mean, some of them taste 60 wines at a time for each critic, but that's still a small fraction of the total wines out there. Vivino, anybody can list any wine that they Precisely. want. And that's, and that's why I say that there's an advantage to it above that very small data set mm-hmm. is that you are literally going to be able to find pretty much anything you can find in a store on Vivino. Now, however, however, let me play devil's advocate again. (laughs) Just put put your horns on and, and, you know, I I should. I I should get a little headband with like little, little devil horns on it every time I do this. If we ever start filming and start talking in this voice, let me play devil's advocate here for a second. (laughs) What what is that voice? Um, Somewhere in between a Reddit debater and the demon that lives in your head every time you make a bad decision. He's. He kind of just laughs constantly. But if we ever do video this, then well, anytime that I have a positive opinion on something, that you, I can you can articulate. have like a halo. Oh, that'll burn off if I try to wear it. <laughs> no, that's no, something. I think it, I think it'll be great. We'll do force perspective. The halo will be far behind, <laughs> so that it doesn't actually come in contact. We can have like um like a ring light that we can suspend from the oh ceiling, and we can just flip it on. But now I feel like we've invested too much in my halo and not enough in your horns. Uh, yeah, we can make adjustments, I'm sure, down the line. We have Although to have like honestly, some sort of VFX on it, your horns. It would. I think honestly, it would almost be funnier if I just had like a dinky set of like Party City <laughs> Devil's horns, and you have this whole setup. Of yeah, like like, like glowing my, ring lights, it's like that. And there are also like mechanical wings. Yeah, that are very like <laughs> obtrusely like Gundam style something, and then you just Gundam have, like, wing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, and then you just have like paper horns. Yes. I <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is this is getting ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so, all right, so back to, on track. So, so, play devil's so tell me why Invino Veritas is wrong. So Vivino's drawback. Yes, it has a larger data set, but that data set has a lot more noise in it. And what I mean by that is because literally anyone can have a Vivino account and review and put tasting notes for a wine out there you have people that potentially know nothing about wine this could be the first wine they've ever tried in their life and they're giving their opinion on it now to be clear i don't think if you're listening to this and you are the kind of person that likes to talk about wine but you're not experienced in the wine world i'm not saying don't be that i Mm -hmm. i would encourage you to do that more but going back to the institutional knowledge versus the consumer knowledge right there's a reason why we have trusted authorities to give more rounded reviews versus people who, again, could be trying the first bottle of wine in their life, posting a review. You well, just and- you don't have the language, most likely, you just don't have the language to give a very informed tasting note on a wine. Because when you're trained, it's not just about, oh, hey, can you taste wine? There are certain synaptic connections that are not made outside of people asking you very specific questions about what you're tasting. Exactly. And and that's where training comes in. Mm -hmm. And there's also the problem inside of a publication like Vivino where it can become an echo chamber because people will simply post a wine rating close to either their friends or a popular reviewer. Yeah. These are all problems. And I don't even know if there is data to be said about either sponsored wine reviewers or bots. Yeah. If anybody from Vivino wants to reach out to us and let us know what measures they're taking against bots, I would be appreciative because I really happen to love the app. 
we are I mean, it's actually, useful. and we're actually starting our own app. We uh, are, or, or not <laughs> our own app. Jesus, we do not we have hi- the resources. We hired to do a that. software developer <laughs> and a software engineer for you guys, which is also why we can't afford another computer. <laughs> Please help. Um, no, we uh, we did start an account on Vivino that we're going to start publishing our stuff on. Um, if you would like to follow that, you can do so. You can also follow us at LaidbackLush on Instagram and Twitter. Is it LaidbackLush on Vivino as well? It's LaidbackLush, yeah. We were able to get it. Okay. We got it. We got it. We got it. Michael Um, set all this up, and he told me literally right before we started recording (laughs) that we have it, so... uh, Yeah, I was just like, so you're still cool with it if we have a Vivino account, right? Yeah, so I know next to nothing about the account, so okay, cool, we were able to get the name. But we were talking before we started the episode... About the difference between like a Monet versus a Picasso, mm-hmm. or not a Picasso, uh, uh, a, a Van Monet versus yeah, a Monet versus a Vincent Van Gogh, who is pretty much despised by everybody throughout his entire life. He didn't have an expression that was near formal training for anything. He was in between sculpture and painting. And people did not like him, but now he's known as one of the primary voices and influences of Impressionism. Meanwhile, we have Monet, also considered, you know, primary voices and influences of Impressionism, but highly privileged, Mm -hmm. highly educated. The whole reason he even does the composition the way that he does is because he was importing pottery from Japan and noticed the discarded block prints Mm -hmm. that they were using to pack it. Both of these expressions are legitimate, Yeah, but it takes a group of people with a language in order to be able to express why. Yeah. So something about Vivino that I also don't particularly like is Vivino works on a five-star system. Mm -hmm. Which which... is roughly between that 50 to 100 point scale. But... It's almost, in my opinion, even less useful as just a a metric in and of itself because it's like, well... Is it just that it tastes good? Is it that it's, it's quality? It's not descriptive is on it... what determines it whatsoever. Yeah. I get that it's it's simplified, but it is still like, does it give a quality indicator? No. Well, it's and what just... are the questions being asked at yeah. each of these points? Um, and again, you're having a lot of people whose opinions might or might not be more valid than others factoring into that score as this well. This is also the reason why I have some trouble using untapped. I will say, I will say, um, in doing research, Vivino's scores do tend to correlate with the major publications. So that is something to consider is the ratings aren't illegitimate. But for me, I'm all about what scoring system being used says about the product itself. And for me, a five-star rating is just very arbitrary, it feels yeah. like. Well, especially, again, we don't have certain goalposts set for any of those things. It's like untapped yeah. in that it's like, oh, well, rate this out of five. And then it doesn't really give you any instruction as mm-hmm. to how you're supposed to do that. So it's up to the taster themselves to set their own arbitrary goalposts. Yeah. So. Another thing, and this will be kind of, I guess, my last point harping on Vivino is, and this is something I value a little bit less, but a lot of sommeliers in particular tend to look down on Vivino Mm -hmm. because of the lack of authoritative voice in Vivino as a whole. But there is another very similar website called Seller Tracker, and they are essentially Vivino, but the community is a little bit smaller and they tend to be a little more 
rigorous, I guess I'll say, in how they score wines in the community there. So they tend to be viewed as a little bit more of, I guess, the more mature older brother of Vivino. Same concept of people can just kind of go in and, and say stuff, but a little bit more polish on the actual ratings of Cellar Tracker. On the ratings. I'm looking at the app now. I guess I should say, when I mean polish, I mean uh, they might be more reliable. <laughs> Not necessarily that they look prettier. Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah, no, the interface is a little older, I will say. So it's going to be a little less intuitive for our, uh, well... Everyone. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> um, at the same time, though, if you are looking for that more niche thing, it might be a better option for you. Mm -hmm. my, my whole thought on it is this. When you're looking at your larger publications, when you're looking at the 100-point scale, you can find a wine critic that has a palette you agree with. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a couple of purchases from a couple of different critics in yeah. order to determine this. I mean, hey, if the Robert Parker description that we gave earlier sounds like right up your alley, just buy whatever he recommends. Exactly. You know? But at the same time, that is not going to give you that personal experience. And it's only going to get you so far. Yeah. So my recommendation is use those tracking apps. Find a group of people who you can actually talk to about this. Mm -hmm. Maybe even find somebody who has a certification if you can or pursue a certification for yourself if that's something you're interested in. We're not saying you need to do that to qualify yourself yeah. to enjoy wine. But the idea is this. As you develop a language with your friends and you have that small group of people where you're exploring things together, you'll start developing the synaptic pathways, you'll start developing the language in order to enjoy the wines that you personally enjoy. Yeah. That's how I see it. Yep. So I guess saying that, we kind of wanted to close out with my own training and um, how I was taught to evaluate wine. Because W set. And sommeliers are both taught to evaluate wines without the use of the Robert Parker. Yeah, we do not do 100-point scales. Yeah, uh, that, is, that is not how they do that. So, particularly at level 3, and I know Diploma, if you go on to Diploma level 4, it's even more intense in terms of the tasting notes that you have to write. But we had to write full tasting notes. Mm -hmm. So, that was evaluating everything that we could about the color, about the aromas the intensity of the aromas the flavors the intensity of the flavors the finish again of the wine and from all of that consider the quality separated from any kind of numerical value for the most part it was kind of so for example if a wine hits less than let's say four or five notes like if you're drinking let's say a pinot grigio and all you're getting is green apple and lemon on it that would be a simple wine. It would not be complex. And what if you're getting acetone and Jolly Rancher? Then I would be concerned. <laughs> At least for Pinot Grigio, I'd be a little concerned. Kind of like the cup of Davino that we had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, Sorry. Was, what was the main banana Laffy Taffy? If you're getting <laughs> that, that might be uh, an indicator that something's wrong. That might be a red flag. Yeah, or a yellow flag. <laughs> let's, let's, let's play wine red flag. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, so so you had a number that you were kind of going for because you wanted to know if you had to evaluate complex... complexity. Yeah. yeah. So from all of that, weighing all these different things against one another, that's how you get your quality assessment. 
the scale, even for WSCT, does tend to favor New World wines because it does tend to favor intense and complex. Those are two very big, important factors for considering the overall quality of a wine. And for Old world wines in particular, intensity can be hard to reach, particularly, again, in cooler areas. It is possible, don't get me wrong, um, but it can just be a little bit more difficult and more rare for them to achieve that. But it could still be an outstanding wine in your own estimation, or you, you think it should be considered an outstanding wine, but just because of the way the ranking system works, it's still not perfect in that regard. And so I personally prefer that method overall even though it does have its own shortcomings because it is difficult to try and give a good estimation of the quality of a wine outside of really going in depth on the tasting note itself of the wine which again robert parker has said they read the description description because Um, that's really where it's going to be but again, we're looking at impact of how that's affected the industry, and the industry has latched onto the number rather than the tasting note. So, what are some of my own personal ideas of some potential solutions? I would like to see a platform that kind of operates on the Rotten Tomatoes principle, where you could have wine critic scores, or maybe even Metacritic, um, where you could have like wine critic scores. And then, you know, the casual drinker scores next to one another. Because again, what's in vogue with wine critics might not be what consumers as a whole are looking for at the moment. And I like the idea of that being something that's uh, based on credentials. Yeah. So, hey, we're confirming whether or not you got this particular certification Mm -hmm. um, in order to qualify you for a wine professional account. Yeah. There's also criticism to be laid there, or hypothetical criticism of, well, what if people start looking at the critic scores and thinking, well, these people know what to say, so I'm going to model my review based off of that. Like, well, just don't do that. There's no, <laughs> yeah, but there's no way to prevent people from yeah. doing that either. I want to be very, is don't do that. I want to be very clear in this whole episode of just there is no perfect way to communicate a very concise way of evaluating a wine's quality. Obviously, outside of what the producer is going to say themselves on the bottle about their own wine, of course, they're going to say it's good. So these are just kind of like things that I thought of that I think kind of address some of the shortcomings of the 100 point score. Michael mentioned taking certs earlier. I would recommend if you have the time and the money to invest in certs and you want to learn more about wine. I would say do it because a lot of certs do require tasting um, more theory on wine and wine knowledge. And I think that that is valuable. And I, I think if you want, again, if you want that and you have the resources to invest in it, I think it's a good idea. Well, so that kind of concludes our evaluation of the current point systems that are in place. Again, there's no real perfect way of rating wines because it is such a subjective thing. But there are tools out there in the form of these different rating systems that might be useful to you, whether you're a new drinker or you're a social drinker. There are places for you to go in order to get just a little bit of guidance. Ultimately, though, what really matters is your own taste and being able to find where your taste 
meets and kind of intersects with those tools that are out there. Yeah. That all being said, though, I do have a little bit of a thing that I wanted to do with Gabe. Now, originally, I wanted you to do this as a Robert Parker thing, but I think I want to actually take you through what I had to go through. So instead, we're going to be basing this off of my former employer and their rating system to see what you have to uh, rate it on. So, so, I, so I, found... I am juxtaposing my own training versus your training. Then. Yes. Okay. But I, the way that I'm doing this is I'm going to tell you out of how many points you're going to be rating specifics in this rating system. Oh, I'm using your rating yeah, system. Yeah, 100%. Okay. And then you're going to expand oh, on it later. <laughs> okay. So what I did was is I grabbed us the Alamos Cabernet Sauvignon from Mendoza, Argentina. This is a 2020 vision uh, vintage, excuse me. And it was given a specific rating by James Suckling that was printed on the bottle. So I just tasted it for the first time and I can already tell you why. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So the very first thing out of five, how would you describe the nose intensity? Um, Four. A four? So it's inviting, would you say? Um, sure. <laughs> we have light, average, pleasant, inviting, and highly aromatic. Inviting? Inviting. That is so... One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> and it's inviting. That's a very odd way to phrase it. I mean, I, yeah. for Yes, because it's not middle, but it's not... Um, the most pronounced wine, particularly for what it is. Fantastic. Let's go on to fruit intensity. Does it have none, which can be from one to ten? Well, before we get into that, is this on the nose or on the palate? Uh, this, I think, this is still on the nose. It's kind of um, it's kind of unclear, really. Mm, okay. No, really. Look, I have the I have the thing here, fruit intensity, because then it goes into flavor characteristics and. I would, if I had to juxtapose the two, I would say fruit intensity and flavor characteristics. I mean, in theory, they should match. They they should, in in theory. We we all know that wines can sometimes taste different than the Some, they smell. But there shouldn't be a huge disparity unless the wine is flawed, particularly if it's corked. True. So let's say none, soft, ample, abundant, bountiful, and powerful. Um, Abundant, I abundant? would say. Abundant? All right. So that's between a 19 and a 20. Which way are you leaning? 20 20 oh okay i mean that this is a fruity wine this is again i i know why we, james yeah. suckling rated it the way he did <laughs> next we have flavor characteristics now this is going to be going into basically your initial impression of it at least that's how i got it so there's undrinkable ordinary good very good or outstanding uh okay well you said we'll get into my explanations later right yeah i'm gonna say good it's good. Okay, so that is between a five and a six. Which way are you leaning? Five. Five? All right. Yeah, I figured that it would be better because these are more basic mm -hmm. for us to go from a more macro to a more micro Yeah. as far as ratings go. Now we're talking about balance. Is it off, slightly off, proportional, harmonious, or perfect? I would say harmonious. Harmonious? That's yeah. a solid four. And now we have length. That is our last rating. So it can be none, fades quickly, lingering up to 30 seconds, lengthy up to a minute, or everlasting beyond a minute. You said lengthy was up to a minute? I think I would give it lengthy. I would also give it lengthy. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and add these up and give it 50 because it's wine. <laughs> and see what we got here. It is wine. 
red wine to be specific. So we have, um, you didn't rate this super well, actually. No, I did not. So James Suckling gave this a 90, whereas uh, Gabe only gave this an 87. I'm going to guess that this is because Gabe actually enjoys our more restrained wines. There's that. So there's a couple reasons. Well, okay, let's um let's go into this as far as how you would rate this given your level of study. So on my level of study, this would still rank as a very good wine. Mm-hmm. It's balanced. It has decent length on it. it Guess could, how much I I bought this for? Um, fifteen to twenty. Ten. Ten, really? Okay. This is this is a good value wine. Yeah. Oh no, it's not bad. It, it, I'm I'm being harsh. Um. I have reasons that I'll get into here in a second. So this would, I think, rank very good for, at least for the level three lexicon, I think very good would be a good to very good. Yeah. I think you could argue length and complexity could be kind of like half points rather than a full point to get to full outstanding wine because it's mainly fruit. There is some bell pepper, very characteristic of Cabernet Sauvignon. It is Argentinian, so harder climate. It's going to be a little bit on the riper side. Mm-hmm. So something I'm very critical of of the scale that you had me do is it doesn't get into really any of the structural characteristics. But I'm going to guess this is probably around 14%, 13-14. The tannins are pretty smooth. They are present. This is a high tannin wine. It's Cabernet Sauvignon, so of course it's going to be. But the tans are very smooth, so there's nothing to really knock there. Um, now, on some of these things, it will go into mouthfeel, which does mm-hmm. go into tannins. It'll say tannin and oak structure together as far as mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. I would say the oak is actually a little bit... It doesn't feel quite as integrated as I feel it should be. It feels a little uh, dusty, but uh-huh. not in an integrated way. It's like dust resting on yeah. uh, on the bottom side of the fruit. It kind of feels like it might be an oak additive rather than oak barrels. Yeah. I don't know how Alamos does their production if you were to tell me it it is actually a barrel i would say okay maybe they're using like either a lot of new oak and it's spending a shorter amount of time in it to not integrate as well or they are using staves or chips or something so the body itself body it it's a full-bodied wine um the texture is a little is a little glycerin-y for my taste yeah it doesn't have the weight for the amount of volume that I'm getting, if that makes sense. I would actually switch those two around. It doesn't have the amount of volume for the weight that you're getting? Yeah. Maybe grit it's not... is more what I'm looking for. Yeah, because it, it is weighty. It does weigh on the But the texture the is way too... But it's it's not filling out my mouth. It doesn't feel very round in mm. my mouth. It just kind of feels... Um, it feels nice, but I've had wines that felt a little silkier, a bit more... Um, mouth coating I think, than this. I think that's... So when I say it doesn't have the weight for the amount of volume, I guess volume is the wrong word. It doesn't spread out on the tongue with the texture of wine. It it spreads out on the tongue with the texture of something that's been thickened. Yes. Well, that's why I say glycerin-y. Yeah. It's almost like there is something added to uh, bump up the perception of body in the wine. Yeah, I don't... It, it doesn't spread like a naturally full-bodied wine. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that's the case, because it could very well be that this is just a higher alcohol wine, and maybe it's not being supported by the, the, the fruit. It could be additives. I don't know. I'm going to guess... 
14%. That's what I'm thinking. 13.5 or 14. 13.5. Yeah. So let's actually jump back to yeah. your scale. Because we already said on my scale this would be probably very good. I personally would argue for good. Why would I do that? So for one thing, the way that your scale relies on very, in my opinion, emotionally charged, maybe not emotionally charged, but very subjective language is not my favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it also is a little bit nebulous in terms of what did I say good on? I said good on something overall. Yeah. So the reason I say good overall and nothing more than that is this is a very standard Cabernet Sauvignon. That is fair. There is nothing about this that stands out to me as unique. Now, I'm not saying that that has to be present in order for it to be a good wine. I mean, I said it, it's good. I mean, I wouldn't even say acceptable because acceptable kind of implies that you don't enjoy drinking it. I'm enjoying yeah. the, drinking this. Like, it's it's fine. Yeah, we me are, too. We are yeah, kind of actually, nitpicking. Um, I am enjoying this tremendously. I, I almost feel like we're slightly soured just by the fact that we're having to use the scale that we're using. Um, I mean, I would have these opinions regardless, personally, because I'm already a little burnt out on this style of Cabernet Sauvignon. Because California is very big on the huge Cab Sab. This is a very big, bold-in-your-face Cab Sab, very fruity. And I do like that out of certain regions, like Chile has some amazing Cabernet Sauvignons that do kind of fit in that category, but they retain a little bit more of the character of Cabernet Sauvignon in Chile. This, this is Argentinian, right? Yes, it is. So this, to me, if you were to tell me this came out of California, I wouldn't think twice about it. There's nothing that really places this in any particular region for me. And that's actually one of the reasons why I chose this specific bottle of wine is because it had the James Suckling label on it. I mm -hmm. figured, you know what? Even though this is from a completely different region than California, mm -hmm. more than likely this has gone through parkerization. Yeah, and it has. It's fruit forward. There is some oak, but it's not super baking spice heavy. I wouldn't say that this is an expression of Mendoza, Argentina. No. I would expect a lot more of the stemmy. I mean, like I said, bell pepper is here, so I will give it that. But I would expect more like black currant. Mm -hmm. I don't really get black currant, which, you know, that's a big thing actually for Cabernet Sauvignon. Should be a thing. I'm not really getting that here. No, it, it is. I could get like a whiff of it, but it, it's. I would expect it to be more pronounced because black currant tends to come across as a little bit herbal, herbaceous, and I, it's just not very pronounced. Yeah. And, I, and I, out of Argentina, I would expect that a little bit more, particularly at the altitude that their vineyards are at. Not getting that really here. Saying all that to say, that doesn't make this a bad wine. Please don't hear me trying to knock this wine. That's not what I'm attempting to do. It's a good wine. But I'm just saying. I don't think this is a 90-point wine. I just don't. It's very middle of the road in terms of the uniqueness. I don't really get anything unexpected. I don't get anything, again, that ties it to any region or terroir. But it still tastes good. It's still drinkable. I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, I think this is a great wine. I would recommend this to someone who likes Napa cabs or California cabs. Or who just likes big, bold reds in general that can handle tannin. And is on a budget. And is on a budget. Oh, yeah. I mean, for $10, this is this is, this is a really solid deal. But I think that this brings us to what I think our next episode should be on. Hmm. Bordeaux. 
Oh God, do we really do we really want to do Bordeaux? I yeah, mean, I I'm wanna, down. I but... want to do Bordeaux. Okay, let's do Bordeaux. I'll go halfsies on you on a, with a bottle. <laughs> I mean, hey, if we're gonna do halfsies, let's just go to Saint Julian or Margot. We don't have to get something extravagant, um, but I would love to do a tasting. Oh yeah, I um, mean, we could at least get like a decent Omedoc. Yeah. Uh, Saint Julian Grand Cru. Um, anyway, no, we should. I, I'm down to talk about Bordeaux. Just uh, listener, be aware that if we get into the uh <laughs> classification system it will be complicated I, i'm not even thinking that we need to go specifically into all the classifications just a basic breakdown of left bank right bank and mostly what i'm looking for out of this is drinking bordeaux wine <laughs> yes no well because we've talked about how a lot of the rating systems that are currently in place they favor these new world wine styles i would love for us to just kind of share well, robert parker really favors bordeaux yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm just saying i would love for us to be able to kind of showcase an appreciation for old world wines just so that we can give people at least our language hmm. i think that that would be really fun i hope that it's fun for you guys if you guys think this is a terrible idea please message us at laidbacklush <laughs> on instagram and twitter if you think it's a fantastic idea do the same Give us your recommendations, mm. your mm -hmm. critiques, because we're not narcissists and we want the nice ones. Offer to pay for the bottle. If you would like. <laughs> <laughs> or, I, Offer to pay for the bottle. <laughs> see, see, that was that was the devil horn Gabe that speaking, so it, it's not reflective uh, of I don't have an angel my... horn, Michael. I feel like he's just an old guy. Like, he's sitting over here. He's just talking like this. He has nothing but pure intentions. I, I think this is a very good dynamic that we have going on. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't Hire think us. this would get grating and annoying at all. Hire us as voice actors. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, though, I think it'd be fun. I could always go with more of like a Gandalf sort of thing. Okay, before we get too off track. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Potentially Bordeaux next episode. <laughs> Anything? You're going to have to edit so much out. Oh, listen, uh, we are hitting uh, almost an hour and 20 minutes of just recording time right now, so Oops. we really need to wrap this up. Well, again, thank you guys so much. We hope that you found this useful. Hopefully, walking into your wine shop and seeing those ratings won't be as intimidating and hopefully a little bit more useful to you. And hopefully no industry people listened to this and got too pissed off at us. We love you, <laughs> industry people. We're, we're part of the industry, we promise. Yeah. I mean, I, I am. So. I mean, yeah, I'm not anymore. <laughs> I got out. You, were. you should get out, too. Uh, he saw the light. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I've been Michael. I've been Gabe. And this has been Laid Back Lush. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>